Well, I don't know if you could tell this looking at me, but I don't have much experience in farming. But uh, I did spend one summer, believe it or not, and I hope you would believe me because I tell the truth. Uh, I spent one summer uh, on an elk ranch, of all things. I didn't even know there were elk ranches just outside Edmonton until I started working on one, but I did. And it was a really fun job. I learned a lot about elk, that they're the largest deer in the whole family, that they can jump, jump crazy high. And I learned uh, how to feed them and make sure they had enough water. I was responsible for that. And I got to do a lot of fun things, like learn how to drive a tractor, not something I ever imagined I'd learn how to do. I knew how to drive a standard, so that was, I had a little bit of a step up there. But got to drive a quad all the way around, which is really fun, especially for a city boy. And uh, one, of the, one of the most interesting things that I did, and I was only a few days into this job, is I helped during calving season. So uh, including the, the pulling out of the animal and got very familiar with that end of things. Not very fun, but interesting for sure. And then the other thing was, this was super Canadian, but one time I went out with a rancher and he threw a couple hockey sticks in the back of his uh, Dodge pickup. And I said, what are those for? And he said, well, he handed me one once we parked and got somewhere. And he said, if the mom comes too close, you separate out the calf. If she comes too close, you hit her with this. And I said, well, how hard? He said, as hard as you possibly can, because otherwise she's going to try and kill you. And so I, my job was to protect this man from the angry mother as we were trying to get the calf ready and tag it and give it the shots and pills and everything. But it was, uh, it was certainly an eye-opener for me and the lots of fun elements. And I learned a lot about what it takes to, to be a farmer and a rancher. And I was really enjoying the summer because it was sunny most of the time. I don't even remember it raining. And I, and I was enjoying this. And then the, the rancher started to get really nervous. And he's like, well, it's already July and we can't even cut hay yet. And he started really telling me this, and the other hand started telling me about it, and said, basically, if they don't grow hay, then he has to buy it. And it, the problem was everywhere in Alberta that they didn't have hay, so they had to import it from Saskatchewan, of all places. And, you know, for an Albertan, that just kind of hurts. But I, I'd heard this went back and forth, you know, so they tried at each other. And, but uh, it was so important for them to have fruitful crops, but there was only so much that they could do. So those who, had, uh, those who had fields, they could seed it, they could lay down all the fertilizer, they could make sure that they could do everything that they could, but they could not make it rain. And even for someone who was a rancher of elk, of all things, he needed it to rain. He needed there to be life growing. And so uh, the farmers all over that year suffered. I didn't mind because I had heard that when it was hay season and cutting season, it was pretty much sun up to past sundown and then the same thing the next day. So I didn't mind more of the regular hours, but the rains didn't come, so they couldn't have a fruitful crop. Now, the Bible often uses agricultural terms because for the people of Israel, they lived in a culture that was by and large agricultural. It was pretty much hands uh, to mouth. So most of the people, the vast majority of people in that society in that day worked with either animals or with crops because they didn't have the, the advancements that we have these days where one person's farm with a few workers can feed hundreds if not thousands of people. They didn't have that. So most people did that. But nowadays with the modern farming technology, very few of us 
know a lot about farming. We, we've heard about it, we've thought about it, and we enjoy eating food. But we don't often know the whole process and the stress that comes along with it. And the way it works now is we just go to a store, pick whichever packaging of food we want, and we take it home. Very few of us actually produce food. So naturally, we're consumers. We consume food. We have to eat every day. But very few of us actually put any effort in besides paying for it to make that food in, into our houses. And so the world is now a world of consumers. We, uh, all advertising actually is meant to make us dissatisfied with what we currently have, and it makes us want the next best thing. So that iPhone you have, that iPhone 5, now it's totally obsolete. You need the newest iPhone, and I don't even keep up with iPhones anymore. I'm an Android user. But anyways, but whatever the newest and latest phone is, all of a sudden makes the last one useless. If you have that, you're an embarrassment. The newest trends in fashion. If you have fashion from 10 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, you'd be back in style now. I remember the Canadian tuxedo, you know, the jeans and the denim shirt. And that was an embarrassment, but now it's back in style. So fashion even, you have to try and keep up with these things. But this mindset of consumeristic has crept into absolutely every area of our lives. It even creeps into churches of all places. We think, well, this church, this place, it doesn't fit my needs. It doesn't do what I want it to do. So I'm going to go somewhere where I can consume church the way I want to consume church. And this is a mindset that's in all sorts of things. But the way of the world is not the way of Jesus. Jesus calls us to something completely different. Jesus calls us to be producers, not consumers. So our passage for this morning is Mark eleven twenty two to 25. I'd love it if you have a hard copy Bible or an iBible with you to uh, flip there or swipe over there. I'll be reading out of the NIV 2011. It'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, And, uh, yeah, so starting in verse 12 of Mark 11. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem... Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Verse 17, as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, 
Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. May God bless the reading of his word. And would you just join me in a word of prayer here? Father God, you, uh, you called Jesus to come to the earth. And he had such a short time in, in our understanding of the way the world works. Three short years to teach and to preach and to heal and to do all of these roles that you called him to, but ultimately to be the Messiah. And so Jesus, I pray that you would enlighten us with your words that Mark has written down here. The story of your life that we are tracking through. That we wouldn't just people, be people who just learn more about you, but we would be people who follow after you obediently. So whether there are people here this morning that have walked with you for many years, or whether there are people here that are just trying to start to figure out who you are, Jesus, we pray that you would help us and encourage us what it means to follow after you and what you are calling us in this passage, not to be producers, but to be consumers. In your mighty name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so here, to set up the story, to understand the story, Jesus is walking after a busy season of ministry, he's been doing ministry for, for years now, and it's coming closer to the end of his life, but uh, he's coming up to Jerusalem, the holy city, and he sees this fig tree, and seems like Jesus is hungry because he's looking for fruit. He sees no fruit on this fig tree, and he curses it. And then he goes into Jerusalem and starts flipping over tables and disrupting things, flipping over benches, and just making this huge ruckus and this huge scene. And so I don't know about any of you, but sometimes when I get hungry, I get a little angry and grumpy. And so I want to ask this morning, was Jesus hangry? That angry, hungry, was Jesus hangry? There's this series of commercials that I love, and I just find them hilarious, by Snickers. It's not a product endorsement, don't go buy Snickers, Mars are better, but anyways. Uh, but they have this series that... Uh, something is happening, someone's maybe really grumpy, they get a funny, uh, a funny actor who's really good at being grumpy, and there's all these other young people around this older person, and they say, here, have a Snickers, because you get a little grumpy when you get hungry, and all of a sudden they turn back. One of the best ones is uh, uh, Betty White, she's, uh, she's playing football, and someone tackles her, and so a friend gets her a Snickers. But this, this idea of when we're, when we're hungry, sometimes we're not ourselves. Sometimes we're a little short-tempered, we're a little angry, our blood sugar's low, maybe we need something. So is that what's going on with Jesus here? What do you guys think? No, maybe not. Well, the, the thing that we think about Jesus, Jesus is perfect. So does Jesus do irrational, angry things? The Bible, the Bible talks quite a bit about anger. And sometimes people use Jesus' anger as an example. Well, I'm allowed to be righteously angry. But the Bible warns us, it says, in your anger, do not sin. And for Jesus, he was sinless, so he didn't sin. But for us, it's really easy when we're angry to step into sin. So I would argue, no, Jesus isn't irrationally angry or tired or whatever. Jesus went through 40 days in the desert at the beginning of his ministry with no food, uh, no water, and he still didn't sin. So I think if, even if Jesus is hungry here, he probably is not sinning. So there's something else going on here that we have to understand. And the way that Mark writes... He writes in such a way, when he tells these stories, he sandwiches uh, one part in a, of an event in a story, and then has something in the middle in between this other section of the story, and then the original story back in. And people like to call it a Markin sandwich. 
those commentators, which just made me hungry when I heard that, when I read that. But this Mark and Sandwich. So the story that happens at the beginning and at the end helps to explain and to help you understand what's happening. So in our instance today, the story of Jesus cursing this fig tree helps us to understand what's really going on in the temple. And so Jesus' actions and words in the temple, we need to understand the fig tree. But we'll start with the temple. But just to recap, so far in our series on the life of Jesus, we've seen several different roles of Jesus. The first we started with was Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus was this promised, uh, this promised Savior for the people. And then we saw him as a leader. He was a person who didn't just do things, but he actually called people to follow after them and equip them and gave them teaching so that they could lead as well. And then he, as a healer, we spent a couple work, weeks looking at Jesus and how he miraculously healed people. So many people that the Bible doesn't even uh, tell them all. And most recently, we saw Jesus as a teacher. Jesus had great things to teach. And even in our, uh, our passage today in the temple, we see him teaching about prayer. But even those who rejected Jesus as God, even these days, will respect Jesus as a teacher. They'll say, Jesus was a great teacher. They love his ethic of love and forgiveness. But Jesus was so much more than that. Three of the primary roles in the, the Old Testament that continue, that Jesus fulfills, of the different leaders of the church, were prophet, priest, and king. So for the nation of Israel, they had prophets. These were people that called out the nation for when they were uh, leaving uh, God's path or that God had something new that he wanted to bring them. And then priests. Priests were the people that interceded on, God's, or on people's behalf to God. They offered sacrifices. They did things. And then kings were the leaders that were chosen by God to lead the nation. And Jesus is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. As the priest, Jesus offers the ultimate sacrifice, the one time for all perfect sacrifice of his own perfect sinless death. As the king, Jesus is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He rules forever. And today we're looking at Jesus as a prophet. And he's the ultimate culmination of a prophet. Prophets uh, had a very hard and unpopular task. Prophets weren't very well liked. One of the, one of the uh, most major prophets in the Bible is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah had a super hard calling. He's actually known as the weeping prophet. Because God basically told him in the Adrian translation, go and tell people all the truth and none of them are going to listen to you. So how's that for a ministry calling, hey? How's that for the lifestyle? Of, go tell the truth, but no one's going to listen and no one's going to like it. But that's what God called him to do. And it spent a life of misery but obedience to God. Well, and then there was, uh, there was uh, John the baptizer, who at, even at this point in, uh, in uh, Jesus' life has already been killed because of his prophetic ministry. The, uh, the king of Israel that had been raised up by the Romans, Herod, had gotten married illegally, uh, unlawfully, unmorally, to his brother's uh, wife, Heroditus. Or Herodias, I can't speak. Herodias, there you go. And his name was Herod. So very similar names, but he married his brother's wife, which he shouldn't have done. And John spoke out against it. His job was a prophet to tell the truth. And then her, uh, her daughter danced really well for Herod. And he said, anything that you want, I'll give you. And she, uh, by her mother's uh, permission, or by her mother telling her, asked for John the Baptist's head on a plate. 
How's that for a, for a nice little present for you? But John the baptizer did his prophetic ministry and was killed for it. So prophets didn't really have long life expectancies. But one of the interesting ways uh, is that they would speak messages, not just with words, but they would actually live out their messages with symbols of how they would do it. One example is that uh, uh, Jeremiah actually spent time when he laid on his side, one side for many, many days, and then on the other side for many, many days. And he only had to eat food that was cooked over uh, cow remainings. And uh, messages like that, they would live out and demonstrate their messages. They wouldn't just speak about it, but they would live them out. And so Jesus' actions here in the temple are actually prophetic message. It's more symbolic than anything else. And so he actually, even though this makes it seem like he's stirring up the entire temple, he's making this huge show, the huge ruckus isn't actually as big as it makes it seem. If he had made this huge uproar and all of the people had stirred things up, the Roman soldiers or the temple guards would have actually stepped in. So what's more likely is that Jesus made one small demonstration in one small area of the, co- of the temple, and the people around are so stunned. And just like any other action like this, it would have drew the crowds and people would have been listening. So Jesus appears in the temple as this charismatic leader, this charismatic preacher and teacher, causes this big stir and gets people's attention. And he's actually physically acting out And we'll get into this a little bit more, but he's physically acting out God's rejection of the temple at this point in the ministry. And he's showing that the the temple had come to a place where it had become full of idolatry, and he warns of its impending destruction. So the temple's glory days are coming to the end. And this understanding transforms a simple display of just uh, what often people call as a cleansing of the temple but it's a simple, small display as an announcement of divine judgment. And so where is this idea coming from? Well, as I said, it's, it's demonstrated out of the story of the fig tree. So in verse 13... Jesus, uh, it says that Jesus approaches the fig tree and it had leaves on it, but it didn't have any fruit. And so different people have come up with all different kind of explanations to try and explain, well, why... Uh, why did Jesus know that it wasn't going to have fruit? Or why did he get upset that it didn't have fruit? But in context, we can understand even better. So one, one example of what some people have tried to come up with is that fig trees, uh, when they have leaves, they have these buds that I couldn't pronounce the name, so I'm, I didn't bother writing it down, but would come up on where it grew figs, figs the year before. And so one person guessed, well, Jesus looked, and it didn't have these buds And so it was clear it hadn't produced fruit the year before and it wasn't going to produce fruit this year. But in the end, it doesn't actually matter. Jesus decided that he was cursing this fig tree. And one of the things, the clues that why this, it talks about this detail about it having leaves but not being the season for fruit is the word season is actually not a botanical term. It's not talking about fruit and gardens. It's actually a religious term pointing to a time of the kingdom of God. And so it's essentially saying the barren fig tree represents that the season of the temple, the season of Jesus' messianic reign was coming, but the temple wasn't ready. 
Jesus uh, was looking for, their, for the temple, for the people to be ready. And the season wasn't right for them. So the Judaism that Jesus had, that the God had called the people to, that their whole role of the temple wasn't living up to what it's meant to. So the, the warning for us is that time can run out for fruitless trees and for prayerless temples. In Jesus' teaching, he said this should be a house of prayer and for all nations, and it hadn't been. So fruitlessness, when the Messiah comes, means fruitlessness forever. Jesus was condemning this fruit tree for not bearing fruit, and he's condemning the temple for the same thing. Now, before Jesus came, the fruit tree was already lacking fruit, but it was consuming. It was consuming nutrients, it was consuming water, sunlight, but it wasn't producing any fruit that it was meant to bear. It was taking in, but it wasn't giving out. Jesus came in the season to bring the kingdom of heaven to Israel, to the whole earth, and Israel was not ready for him. The season had come when they should have been bearing fruit, and yet they had none. Everything that was needed was provided. They had the word of God. They had prophets that had come. They had had God's presence with them, and yet they still weren't bearing fruit. But when we look at this, when we look at Jesus coming up to this fruit tree and then flipping over tables and doing these things, do Jesus' actions seem harsh? Do they seem like, well, why didn't, why weren't you a little more patient with them? So why, why did Jesus come bringing judgment and bringing, seems like, condemnation rather than giving them time, rather than, you know, Jesus used this power to condemn this fruit tree to to die and to wither. Couldn't Jesus just have easily said, bear fruit, and it would have grown fruit like that? Well, certainly. Jesus could have done that. But he didn't. And so there's something important going on there. You know, there's this tricky thing that God gives human beings called free will. You know, Jesus can control a fruit tree just like that. But people, he chooses not to control. He gives us the opportunity. He gives us the ingredients And then we have to do what we want with that. So rather than Jesus just purifying this temple, he's calling it out and he's saying the time for the temple has come. You know, this fruit tree gives the impression that it should be bearing fruit. It should have the point where it's having these buds coming out, but it doesn't. But it looks, if you're looking at this tree from a distance and you see leaves on it, you should go, that's going to bear fruit. That fruit tree is going to have fruit. It's promising something that it's not fulfilling. In the same way, the temple was not giving what it should have. It looked like it was promising something that it didn't fulfill. The temple had actually become only a place for insiders. It was something that only helped those who were already in the Jewish faith. It only helped those who were already in the religious power. And so the temple only profited the religious hierarchy. It didn't profit anyone else, and it profited nothing for God. It merely consumed God's love. So Jesus contemned the tree because it merely consumed nutrients and didn't give out any fruit. And in the same way... He condemned the temple as the central structure of all of Israel's worship for not fulfilling its role. 
You know, God created the temple, and when, even from the very beginning, when God chose Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the nations. God chose Israel to be a light on a hill, to be the beacon, to be the place that they were following God so well that it would draw people from all nations to come together. It was never about having the lineage of blood that you had to descend from Moses, that you had to descend from Abraham by blood. It was about obedience to who God is and his love for them. So Jesus, he's coming here and he says, this is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. But the temple had actually come a place of barriers. I have a a picture for those who are visual of the temple to try and explain this a little bit. So just the sheer size of this, if you see in the bottom right there, the size of the football field is that black little rectangle. And then the rest is, the, the one to the side of it is how big the temple was. Okay, so if you're thinking about Jesus flipping, temple, or flipping tables, it would have been in the Gentiles' courtyard. And the, the process of what they were doing was actually something that was necessary for the life of the temple. They had to collect, uh, to collect a tax for those who came to the temple. And they also had to provide a way for people to have a sacrifice. Their ritual sacrifices, depending on your class of how much money you had, were either an a, a, a bigger animal such as a, a sheep, or it would have been something small if you were poor like a dove. And it had to be perfect and uh, without a blemish and spotless. And so if somebody was leaving their home from the other side of Israel and they had to bring a sheep all the way there, the likelihood of it still being spotless and without a blemish was very unlikely because it could have got hurt or maimed or killed along the way. So instead, people would bring money and they would buy an animal. It was important. It was a part of it. But if you look at the size of that court, Jesus would have had hours going around and flipping tables. And doing things. And it would have caused a huge riot. So Jesus probably was on one little part of that. Flipped a couple tables. And then got people's attention. And so Jesus. Rather than, uh, rather than this temple. This place of worship being for all nations. This, they had different areas. So they have the Gentiles court. They have the uh, inside. The little square is the, the woman's courtyard. So women could only go in a certain place. And then further in was for men. And then in the very central of the temple. Was the Holy of Holies where only one priest, the high priest, could go one day a year after following lots and lots and lots of cleansing rituals. So this was meant to be something for all people. But just the way the temple was built and designed and made is that there are certain barriers for certain people. If a Gentile tried to go into the inner court, their life was forfeit and they could be killed. If a woman tried to go further than the woman's courtyard, she could be killed. If uh, even a a priest tried to go into the Holy of Holies, they would be killed. And there were these barriers that were set up. But some of the barriers were not just by the design of the temple, but they were actually by human-made systems that had become rotten to the core. Rather than uh, trying to draw people to God, there was this veneer of piety and this uh, aura of holiness that made them seem untouchable. People didn't want other people to come to Jesus. They didn't want other people to come to God. But Jesus affirms for anyone that has faith, faith, the world could be remade. So Jesus' uh, statement here, calling this a den of robbers, 
may seem like it's about the money, like Jesus cares about the money. And surely there's an aspect to that because they were getting rich themselves. The, the priests were corrupt. They were taking more than they needed to. But actually the den of robbers is something, if you think about it, so a den is a safe hiding place. So for uh, Robin and his merry men, it was the, uh, it was, uh, the forest that they would hide. Sherwood Forest, I couldn't think of it. it was, I was thinking Nottingham. And, but uh, it's, it was the forest. And so they could go and rob the rich and then give to the poor. And then they would hide and they would be safe there. And so Jesus calling the temple a den of robbers. Let's unpack that because that means something more. And what he's saying essentially is that the Jewish people, especially the priests and the religious structure, but the people in general could live however they wanted outside this temple. They could steal from people. They could, uh, they could murder people with their hearts. They could walk around with this uh, aura of righteousness and holiness and be ri- wicked and rotten to the core. And they could do whatever they wanted, 364 days a year. But as long as they came to the temple when they were supposed to, offered the sacrifices the way that they were supposed to, acted holy and acted pious, then God had to forgive them. That's what they thought. They, as long as they followed the rituals, they thought God is forced to say, I'm cleansed. But was that the point? Was it, was it meant to do whatever you want, but as long as you follow the prescripted pattern of cleansing, you're fine. What Jesus is saying is that essentially you're, you're being robbers out in the world. You're stealing from people. You're attacking people. You're hurting people. But then this is your safe place where you come and you feel righteous. You feel safe. You feel fine. Jesus is is warning them this is a terrible thing. So they would think that anything is permissible as long as they follow the ritual sacrifices. They totally missed the whole point of this system of rituals. The rituals were never meant to actually uh, become the focus of their worship. The rituals were meant to be a symbol And a foreshadow pointing to what Jesus would do. And all throughout the Bible, there were people that weren't of the the Jewish uh, descendants that actually came to faith and started following God obediently. Rahab, the the prostitute most likely, actually uh, came to be one of the descendants of Jesus. She came in to be part of their family through faith. She wasn't born of uh, Abraham's descendants. But she became part of Israel because it was always about faith. And God's requirements are not ritual, but ethical. In Hosea 6.6, it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Which which seems hilarious because their whole system was about sacrifice. It was about sacrificing their money. It was about sacrificing animals. It was about sacrificing time and energy because they had to come to Jerusalem at certain high holidays and to come and to worship God at the temple. But God's saying, I don't, I don't want sacrifice. I want mercy. So the sacrifices were only meant to point them to Jesus. So cultic sacrifices in themselves are worthless unless it has, they have a heart that is following after God. A heart of faith, of prayer, and of forgiveness for other people. So rather than being those people who received God's mercy because of their faith, and then sharing that mercy with the, with the rest of the world, 
the religious order of the day had consumed God's gifts of grace and mercy and kept it to themselves. They thought they were better than other people. And the temple, rather than being this beacon and light on this hill that was meant to, to be a blessing to all the nations, had come, become a thing of national pride. We are better than other nations because we have the temple. We have God's presence with us, so we are better than everyone else. So Jesus is saying and warning through this judgment of the fig tree and the temple to be producers, not consumers. But what are we meant to produce? We're meant to produce fruit personally and as a community, as a community of faith. And one of the verses that our kids are memorizing right now lines right up with this. In Galatians 5, to 23, it says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These nine fruits of the Spirit. Now going through that list, what's lacking in your own life? For this morning, for myself, being a parent, patience was something that was being stretched and grown. But love, joy. Who, who just feels so full of joy every single day of their lives? There's some of you that I, I see that evidence in you, but peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know, love is something that we talk about all the time. They, they, we say that God is love. And love is a verb, and it's action. It's something we need to action on. But joy is so often overlooked. You know, joy is so important. You know, as a, as a community of faith, as a church, does anyone want to come to a, a church that's just everyone's sour and dour and serious and spirit of grumpiness? I know it's, I know it's February and uh, seasonal affective disorder, and it's sad and hard, but the sun is out. It's shining. We should be so full of joy. We should be happy when we come to church. We should be smiling. We should be joy-filled people. And that's not easy. But that's a fruit of the Spirit. But the very nature of fruit is that fruit can't be faked. You know, we can, uh, it's something that maybe you, can, uh, you could try to fake for a few minutes. But you know, when something comes and tests your patience, all of a sudden, out comes the hangriness. But... Fruit can't be faked, but it's, the quality of fruit is directly linked to the proper amount and combination of several factors. The right amount of rain, nutrients, sunlight, temperature, freedom from bugs and disease. For farmers, they know that there's only so many of those factors they can control. They can plant the seeds, they can uh, till the soil and then plant the seeds, and they can uh, fertilize at the right time, they can spray, they can do whatever they need to do but they can't make those crops grow. If they're a believing farmer, they can pray for rain, but they, they can only control so many things. You know, the rancher I worked for did everything right that summer. He did everything he could, but he still couldn't cut hay because it didn't grow. And so he did everything he had, but each of us are called to produce fruit. We're called to be producers of fruit, but in order to do so, it's not just let's try harder. It's about being connected to the source of all life, Jesus. If we live in obedience to Jesus, enough that we walk with him and we drink deeply from the well of life, we will grow fruit. As long as we, don't, we aren't disobedient, we will 
drink deep from Jesus and we will be fruit trees. We'll be fruitful. And so the well of life, some of the ways, the ingredients that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that we need to do is prayer. We need to be prayer people that we talk with God. We need to worship. And worship isn't just singing songs, but singing songs is one way to worship. We need to read the Bible. We need to read what Jesus says, what the the people who have gone before us have said and done. And we need to act on our faith. We need to actually live out our faith. And then he will be faithful to grow us. It says that we can plant the seeds, but only God can bring the growth. We can do whatever we can, and God will do the rest. He is faithful. Now there's another list of some of the fruit, uh, some of the indicators. These aren't the only ones. But uh, as I already mentioned, the fruit of the Spirit, so Galatians 5, to 23, these are characteristics or attributes that if we look at our lives, we should be growing in these things. If we look back at ourselves 10 years before, we should be more patient, we should be more full of joy, we should be more full of peace. And then the opposite of these are actually true. If we, if we look in our own lives and we don't have peace, we don't have joy, we don't, we're not kind, we're not self-controlled, then we have to ask ourselves and we have to ask God if, if there are any barriers that are preventing me from growing these things. The second, the fruit of transformed lives. As Christians, as a community, as individuals, we should see other people's lives transformed because of our presence in their lives. We should see people come to have faith in Jesus. We should see them transformed. And then the fruit of the works of righteousness, Philippians 1.22, which means that we should grow in holiness. We should grow in our obedience that comes from faith. The, uh, the fourth is fruit of financial giving, Romans uh, 15 to 28. We should be growing in generosity, not just finances, but in uh, giving of our time, energy. And then uh, the fifth is fruit of praise, Hebrews 13.15. We should be encouragers and full of joy for those around us. And there's an incredible difference. And we can all look at people who have walked with Jesus for a long time. And no matter their circumstances, they're still full of joy. We can look at people then that are on the opposite side of that. Who maybe they've been in church for many years, but you look at their lives and they do not have joy. What's the difference between those people? I would say it's between the one that are resting and relying on Jesus and others that are looking to other people to fill them up. You know, if we, if we expect other people to fill us up and other people to give us our needs, we are, of course, are going to be miserable because they'll always let us down. But if we look to Jesus to fill our needs and to supply our needs, then he will fill us up. So Jesus is for us and he calls us to be producers. And he helps us to produce. But there are challenges and hindrances that if we're not careful will take us off track. Just four of them uh, that I'm bringing up. First is famine. In verse 12 it says that, that Jesus comes up to this tree and it's, there's no fruit. And there, as I mentioned there's seasons where it's not raining. So there's seasons that in our lives we can feel dry. We can feel like God maybe feels distant. We can feel like we're not energized. But we need to in those times be faithful even when we're going through dry spells. The second is finding. Sometimes we don't see fruit in our lives because we're not looking for it. Maybe sometimes we need to look back and reflect, okay, 10 years ago, I've made a lot of progress. Okay, I've made progress since then. But we need to find the fruit in our lives and in other people's lives. Third is fear. It says that the, uh, the, 
the religious leaders of the day, when Jesus spoke, they were afraid of him. They had so much fear. Now Jesus came in and he came promising new life and new hope and he was the Messiah. But they were so entrenched in their system that they were afraid he would take the power away from them and they wanted to kill him. The Bible says the beginning of all wisdom is fear of the Lord. So we are to, to, we are to have this awe, this reverence, and this holy fear of God. How could we fear another human being if we have a right understanding of how holy God is? There's a, a pastor who preached uh, this, this powerful sermon, and it's called uh, Sinners in the Hands of a Holy God. And the, the picture that he came up with in the sermon is that there is a raging inferno of hell. That the only thing preventing us from going in there is the hands of a loving father who prevents us. Now, some people jump off and they say, I don't want to be with God. I'd rather jump off and just make my own way. But God's love and grace, but that God is so big that we, he should be the only thing that we're afraid of. But then we have the, the counterpoint that says perfect love casts out all fear. So if we start with the fear and understanding of how holy and how righteous God is, and that we do not deserve life, but he gives it to us anyway, then that is a great place to begin. And then we can walk in the love and the forgiveness. And then the fourth is forgiveness. In the verses 25 to 26, Jesus talks about forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that we have been forgiven by God. Jesus is ready to forgive us if we but repent. But Jesus warns us, if we hold unforgiveness in our own hearts, then it's a barrier between us and Jesus. So if somebody hurts us, when somebody hurts us is more likely, if we hold bitterness and anger and hate against them, then we're actually preventing God from forgiving us. Isn't that scary? Who here has ever not had a season of bitterness or anger at somebody else? Righteous anger, we like to say, but... Somebody does something to us, and we say, well, I'm, I'm just going to be mad at that person. But we need to forgive them. Otherwise, we're actually creating a hole in our relationship between us and Jesus. Because Jesus can't or won't, whatever it is, forgive us if we are holding unforgiveness against somebody else. So now, of course, the challenging question this leads all of us to as individuals are, are we consumers or producers? Now, of course, logically we'll think, well, I need food. I need to eat. I need, I need to consume. And that's the natural part, but we also need to be producing as we consume. The way our bodies work physically is we take in food and we produce energy and we produce uh, life from that. There's byproducts and everything, but do we merely take from God or do we take what he gives us, and then pass it on to other people? Do we share what we learn? In our relationships with those around you, your spouse, your loved ones, your friends, your family, do you add to those relationships or are you merely a drain? Do you just take people's time and energy or do you add something to that relationship? Now this isn't something we can do on our own. Just as a fruit tree, just by wanting to bear fruit, can't bear fruit. It's not about trying harder to produce fruit. We need God. 
We need God's help. We need Jesus to pour into our lives. We need to pour, or we need to drink deeply from the well of life that is Jesus. And being connected to Jesus is absolutely essential. He's the source of all life and goodness, and it's impossible to live life to the fullest extent without being in relationship with him. So if you're not in relationship with Jesus, you can try to be a nice person all you want, but it's not going to work to the fullest extent possible without being in relationship with Jesus. And so the call for us to produce fruit is not the call to try harder, but to surrender more to Jesus and say, do what you want in my life. So that's the individual level. But we're also a community of faith. We are a church. So this passage is a litmus test for us. Churches that merely consume the favor and the presence of God, but don't produce fruit of obedience in evangelizing and discipleship and reaching the lost and seeing lives transformed are in the same state that the temple was in. A mere looking like a place where God is honored and worshipped and, and lifted high and promising something that it's not fulfilling. And that's a dangerous place for any church to be because just as Jesus warned the temple, its coming destruction was coming. If a church isn't producing fruit, isn't producing changed lives, then something is not as it should be and needs to change. So as a church, we're prayerfully seeking God's guidance for renewed vision and purpose and role for us as a church. And we all need to be in prayer personally and corporately for where God wants to lead us as individuals and as a church forward. So please join us in praying for God's guidance. Our church isn't just here to serve our needs. Certainly we are to care for and encourage and to love one another. But we have a whole community out there that needs to hear about Jesus. In the coming months, we're going to have the opportunity to gather together and to talk and to celebrate and to dream together for what God's plan for our church is. And I would hope as many of you would take the time to gather with that, and we'll have more details coming, but just what our role here as a church, what we have been uniquely called to do here in Penticton together as a church. So we're going to be digging into that. And as the, uh, the worship team comes up, I just want to give, I like to do this every week, just three really practical ways that we can act on this morning's message. Because sometimes we listen to sermons, and I, I do believe the Holy Spirit can speak something outside of these things, but I just like to give clear uh, direction on something. So the first is to read. The Bible is powerful. It moves powerfully. So read Mark 4, 1 to 20, and Mark 12, 1 to 2. Both of these are great passages talking about uh, growing and being fruitful. The second is to reflect. In prayer, ask God, am I fruitful? Is our church fruitful? Ask these questions. And then to pray. Pray for God's help to produce fruit in your lives and for us as a church to produce fruit. Now would you please join me in prayer as we uh, respond in worship to God. Jesus, I thank you for who you are, and I thank you that you want to grow fruit in our lives, that you want us not to merely be producers, or to be consumers, but to be producers, Jesus, that we wouldn't merely just consume your presence and your love for us, but that we who have been forgiven would forgive others, that we who have been loved would love others, that we who are called children, sons and daughters of the Most High, that we would tell other people how to come to faith in their Father. 
So I thank you, Jesus, for what you have done in our church, what you are doing, and what you are going to do in the future, Jesus. So I thank you, and we look forward expectantly to hearing from you this week and in the coming months and years ahead, Jesus. Help us to go and to bear fruit. And for any of those here this morning that don't yet have a relationship with you, Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw them and speak to them. And whatever hindrances or barriers are in their lives, Jesus, that you would destroy those and help them to come to faith in you, Jesus. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your love. And help us to to be equipped and empowered and excited and full of joy when we leave this place to worship you in spirit and in truth in our whole lives. And now as we worship you, may we worship you in spirit and in truth. And all God's people who agreed said, Amen.